1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11 together. So if you would follow along with me as I read out loud, this is the most important thing we're going to do in our worship service. To set our eyes on God's word, to open our ears to it, to receive it together in these next few moments. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Doctors, medical professionals have a goal of health for their patients. And one thing that doctors do that I think makes a lot of sense is an annual checkup. Even if nothing seems to be going wrong, you probably ought to have some kind of regular check-in with your doctor. Why is that? We may think that when we come to that point in our calendar where we see that appointment, we go, I've got enough going on this week. I don't feel like anything's wrong with me, can I at least push that back a little while? Can I find some way to put that off? And we've heard too many stories where people who think that there's nothing going wrong in their bodies go to the doctor for a routine checkup and find out that they might even have a life-threatening illness that they had no idea was there. As we come to 1 Timothy this morning, I hope and pray it feels nothing like an annual checkup, though there are similarities and overlap. I hope and pray that as we come to 1 Timothy, we are coming open and willing to receive from God's word what God has in his word. Because that indeed was the problem that Paul noticed in the churches of Ephesus. And the charge that he gave to a young Timothy who served not directly as a pastor, but sort of as a bishop. We don't have bishops in our denomination, and many evangelical denominations don't have bishops, but a bishop is, in a sense, a pastor of pastors, a 
an upper ring authority over the pastors in the local church setting. And Timothy was a peculiar bishop at this time, maybe not at this time because the apostles were mostly alive and well, but in our looking at this time, he was peculiar because he also bore apostolic authority as he was sent by an apostle, the apostle Paul. This is, of course, how Paul addresses himself or introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, if he would have left it at that, it may have come across to some as a boast. I am an apostle. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. In our greatest spiritual goals, wouldn't it be nice to be known as an apostle? To bear such a title, one sent by Christ himself directly for the church. But Paul, as he so often does in the openings of his letters, does not leave his title alone. In the first verse, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of our God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. By command of God. And that's essential for us at the outset of 1 Timothy to recognize that what Paul is seeing is not a matter of his preferences being dismissed in the churches of Ephesus. I don't really like the songs that you're singing on Sunday morning. The way the service is set up doesn't really flow with the way I like to do things. And I really wish you'd start preaching this way more and maybe moving around the state. No, Paul isn't concerned with those things. What he's concerned with is the command he received from God. And that command is a matter of sound doctrine. Like an annual checkup with your physician, Sound doctrine, this term, this word sound before the word doctrine in Hebrew has to do with hygiene. In fact, the Hebrew word is the word from which we get the word hygiene. With health, spiritual health, with the health of our doctrine. And what is this word doctrine, by the way? Does it mean that we ought to have some kind of great uh, education in order to engage with it, since it has this fancy-sounding word of doctrine. Doctrine is just a thing that you believe about God. And the fact is, is that there is good doctrine, there is sound and healthy doctrine, and there is unhealthy doctrine. And a lot of times, as we'll see here with the unsound or unhealthy doctrine of 1 Timothy that's being addressed, it wasn't necessarily one that was overtly obvious. In some cases, and especially if you were to read the, the book to the Galatians, the letter to the Galatians from Paul. Paul is addressing so often a group known as the Judaizers, those who are working directly against the gospel, trying to make the good news one of a self-earned merit or righteousness before God. What you can do to make God happy. When the gospel is precisely the opposite, we can do nothing to make God happy with us, but what Christ has done can cover all of our sins, can renew and give us a new life in him. What's going on here, it is false doctrine, but it isn't to the same overt, obvious false doctrine as the Judaizers. It's something a little more subtle. We'll get into that in a moment. While Paul is going to deal with sound doctrine throughout the entirety of his letter, the reason for it is also essential as we think about the theme of the book. Because the goal is a healthy church. So let me ask you this morning, as we're thinking about sound doctrine, how do you determine the health of a church? How do I determine the health of a church? 
One of the most obvious ones may be attendance and money, right? If we could get a financial report, which actually we do have on the back of our bulletins, we do tell you what has been given in the past month or so. Does that directly tell us whether our church is healthy? Is it possible that you could walk into a church that is donating a million dollars a week and not have a healthy congregation, a healthy doctrine, healthy leadership? Well, it's certainly possible. It's not only possible, it's actual. It's actual in a lot of churches. And this is where I need to especially say, our job in these moments is not to throw stones at other churches. We are Crosspoint Community Church. And when we come to God's word, it is essential that we receive it as such within this context. The truth is, there are many churches that you know about who are teaching unsound or unhealthy doctrine. There are churches that are known nationally. There are churches that are unknown virtually and yet still teaching unsound and unhealthy doctrine. And if that's true, our first priority shouldn't be to immediately defame those churches, but to recognize that if it's that common, is it possible in our church? How we would want to say absolutely not. We're a perfectly healthy church. Certainly if we stop the sermon right now, put all of our chairs in a circle, and try to take the heartbeat of Crosspoint, we would come up with a lot of reasons that we would say, hey, we're, we're doing pretty all right, we're pretty healthy here. Maybe we're weak in this area or in that area. And that would be good. That would be good exercise for us, perhaps individually in small groups. We should be thinking about the health of our church. But what Paul is going to get at here is that next step of how do we keep healthy rather than simply diagnosing. Because the big problem that we face as a church in America in 2024, it's a new year, by the way, is that it's so easy to diagnose and so many are unwilling to embrace the cure. Anyway, let's get into Paul's letter here. We're going to look at this in a few sections. We're going to first look at the first four verses and see how Paul establishes apostolic authority and the stewardship of faith. Then we'll get verses 5 and 7 and see um, his purpose of keeping with an aim of love as it comes to sound doctrine. And then we'll end our time in verses 8 through 11 as we see sound doctrine from the law and the gospel. Well, when Paul gets into his letter, he wastes no time. He does certainly introduce himself. He addresses Timothy in a very affectionate way. I mean, really, this was hard for me. I, I, I have kind of four different sermons that I wanted to do this morning, and I decided to take more of the passage than I initially wanted to because verse 2, there is a tenderness about Paul's addressing Timothy. Do you see it? Would you look at verse 2? He says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. One of the things that we learn about Timothy is that he was raised by a believing mother, and we don't really know about his father. He may not have been around. He may not have been alive. But Paul has in many ways taken Timothy on as a sort of adopted son in the faith. That's a really special thing. And especially imagining Timothy receiving this letter in a wrapped-up scroll from the first-century postman receiving this letter, being so excited. This is a letter from Paul. I can't wait to see what he has to say. What I really hope for is that he's going to tell me where I can meet him, where we can get back together and keep our ministry going together because he has left me in Ephesus, and at least according to scholars and theologians, our assumption is Timothy did not like being in Ephesus. 
And as we read on, we might see why. But look at what Paul says. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, what is it, Paul? What is it you have to say say to me? As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. This is the point where every time I open up 1 Timothy, I kind of imagine Timothy just kind of dropping the letter for a second. Remain in Ephesus. Does he have any idea what's going on in Ephesus right now? This is terrible. I don't want to be here. The good news, Timothy, is Paul does know what's going on in Ephesus. The bad news is that's why he wants you to stay. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul wastes no time in getting straight into his purpose. Timothy may have been hoping to find Paul's letter as an invitation to leave Ephesus, but he's going to stay, remain at Ephesus. I really like this because it reminds us that church life is hard work. And again, an entire sermon, perhaps sermon series, could be delivered on this phrase, remain in Ephesus, and what it means for us to remain together today though there may be unhealth in the church. This is a call not only for Timothy, but for everyone in the congregation as well. Uh, Timothy is over, is, is sort of bishop over multiple churches in Ephesus, and this letter wouldn't have just been his private property. It would have been something that he would have stood up, as I am right now, in front of the rest of the church, and said, listen to what Paul says. Some of you are teaching false doctrine. I'm supposed to charge you with this. I mean, you imagine that when Timothy finally perhaps gained the courage, we have reason to believe he was a little timid, that when Timothy gained the courage to stand up and say what Paul told him to do, he probably said, look, if you have any problems with what I say or what I'm doing, I'm just following Paul. And boy, do I resonate with Timothy in that. If you have any problems with what I'm saying, I'm just reading the book. So, I left you so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote, notice this, and note this in your mind, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, I've I've wondered as I've looked at this, what is the stewardship from God by faith? It must be the gospel, right? It must be the message of Christ's life, death, resurrection, his substitution for our sins that we receive how? By faith. Now this is where it might have gotten awkward that this letter was being read in front of the whole church. Probably many in leadership and in the congregation knew what was going on, but when Timothy reads this letter out to, the whole, to all of the churches, you know, multiple times we would have read it, poor Timothy, it would have been news to at least some people, if not most people. So they would have heard Paul's saying different doctrine. What is he talking about? What's the different doctrine? We're all reading the Bible here. How could we have a different doctrine if we're all looking at the same source? And this is what is perhaps the scariest thing about false teaching and different doctrine is that we can very easily grab onto the idea that good doctrine comes from the Bible. So if we want good doctrine, we should get it from the Bible. And yet... Most, if not almost every instance of false doctrine has some beginning point 
of someone looking at God's word. Note, I didn't say beginning in the Bible, but beginning with someone engaging with the Bible in an improper way and using the Bible to teach something that is false. Now, some appointed elders in the church of Ephesus, Paul will say, were swerving or turning aside from sound doctrine. We see why Paul is again urging Timothy here. You know, one commentator noted that typically Paul in his openings will say a word of thanksgiving. I thank God in all my remembrance of you. I'm so thankful for you, churches, as you're following Christ. He leaves that out entirely in this case. First Timothy doesn't immediately seem as stark as like a Galatians. Galatians would have been written far earlier with an angrier Paul. But First Timothy also has a grave sense of urgency about it because of that verse 3. As I urged you. Nothing has changed. There's still an urging. There's still a serious matter about doctrine. And church, we need to ask ourselves, are we serious about doctrine this morning? I hope because I know myself all too well, far more than you would ever want to know me. I hope that you do not take what I say for granted. Do we care about doctrine? Do we care to look into the word? Do we care to learn how to handle the word rightly so that we might be, as we have often said, good Bereans about the word of God, that as we hear teaching and preaching, that we would go home and we would think about these things and we would recount what had been said and look at the word of God. And and if we have questions of clarification, that you would bring those questions back. Or if you have perhaps an accusation that something wasn't handled rightly in the word of God, uh, nobody's done that really in the last four years. I don't think it's because I have a perfect record. So if I don't say something right, would you please let me know? You might be wrong too, but we could have that conversation and it would be worthwhile because it would be an expression of what Paul's trying to get at, the urgency of sound doctrine. Because even some appointed elders in the churches of Ephesus were swerving. So how important to you is sound doctrine, both in your church life and in your personal life? Now, note here, I add that personal life thing not as something that Paul even addresses yet. So far, he's just talking about in the church. If our mindset is kind of, hey, I'm going to show up on Sunday, I'm going to listen to the thing, I'm going to wave and say hello to everybody, and then I'm out and I'll see you in seven days, are we really prioritizing our church life? Are we able to even answer the question of the importance of sound doctrine in our church life? if that's all our church life amounts to. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying that that is one of the big struggles in American Christianity, is that I come, I receive the thing, I go, and then I come back when the next thing happens. Are you connected with the body of Christ? Are you learning with the body of Christ? How important is sound doctrine in your church life? A lot of the time we want to reverse the order of things. So Paul lays out for us that healthy doctrine produces healthy churches. And we'll see in verse 5 that that produces healthy mission. Why don't we just look at that for a moment before we come to it in a second here. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, this is important for us today because too often people say doctrine really doesn't matter. I really don't want anything to do with doctrine. Don't ever hand me a book with the word systematic theology on it because what I need to do is love Jesus and love people and that's it. 
that's not a terrible church mission statement if you really think about it. Because Jesus did say the first and great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah, we all did it in different orders, didn't we? Yeah. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, which, as Keith Green said, what that really means is love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, right? So today, what we often hear is somebody saying, listen, I will know the health of a church when I see the health of their mission. But Paul says, you'll know the health of the church when you know the health of their doctrine. He doesn't really say much at all about what they're doing. He talks about what they're believing, where the start of who they are truly is and what they believe. So healthy doctrine produces healthy churches, and that produces healthy mission. A lot of time we want to reverse that order. We may think that if we were to perceive a healthy mission in a church, maybe we see a good soup kitchen or an after-school program, youth ministries, homeless care. What's the thing you're passionate about? Because that's often what directs your church choices. You say, man, you know, I know we need to, we need to help the homeless people. So I'm going to find a church that helps the homeless people. I'm submitting to you this morning that Paul might disagree with your choice of church. I'm not saying that because we don't have a homeless ministry. What I'm saying is that Paul is saying it starts with sound or healthy doctrine. Right belief produces right living and action. Paul doesn't present a matter of right action producing right thinking, but the opposite of that. So Paul's concerned with the matter of spiritual health and the fact that some teachers what they're doing is, in fact, unhealthy and harmful for the church. They are bringing an infection to keep our illustration of medical health in view. Through unhealthy teaching, they're not promoting the gospel, Paul says, but they're promoting speculation. And speculation is so annoying, isn't it? I mean, think about how you sift through news, right? Nobody wants to sit and just hear what somebody says because who that person is and what they think is going on. If you are a good receiver of news, your goal is to say, tell me the facts and I'll decide what I think about it, right? We don't want somebody to tell us, hey, here's what you should think about what's going on. That's not a journalist's job, right? The journalist's job is to say, here's the facts. Here's what happened. We saw it. We confirmed it. This is what happened. And from that, as Billy Graham used to say, you hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and you say, I'm going to let God show me how I ought to think, react, respond to whatever's going on in the world around me. The importance of sound doctrine is the importance of promoting the gospel, not speculation. Promoting the truth that Christ has already proclaimed to us. Again, Paul first calls this the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, again, he's talking to Timothy, a church leader, but I think we as a collective church must consider the gospel something that we have not only, although primarily we have received it as a gift, as a grace, the grace of all graces, that we are saved from the penalty of our sin, that hell is no longer in the, uh, our future whatsoever, but rather perfect bliss and joy with Christ. That is what the gospel is primarily, but it is also a stewardship. It is your stewardship, church. It is your responsibility Sunday through Saturday. That is to say the whole week, all the time. We've received the gospel through the truth of his word, and we need to promote the gospel within the household of God. This is the starting point, right? 
And, and it's cool that what we see is this picture of a household, of a, of a larger family, because we know how smaller families work, right? The home is the training ground for the child. It's where they learn how to deal with their bosses and with their coworkers and how to learn and uh, how to do work and how to be a, a valuable member of society. I'm having this conversation with one certain member of my household. Not my wife. She knows how to be a valuable member. But you don't come into a family thinking, what do I have to give here? How can I make the Vion family the best thing it could ever be? None of my kids have been born that way. I wasn't born that way. It's something that needs to be taught and learned, and you have a setting for that, because then that person, I hear they do this when they grow up and they leave. Is that true? They, they grow up and they leave. They go out into the world, and, and, and they go out and they have some effect on the world around them. And that in some way has to do with us because they are our stewardship. Now, the gospel is not like children in that we can influence the gospel. The gospel influences us. But the matter of our proclamation of the gospel, of our promotion of the gospel, is essential. That is what we promote, not speculation. Speculation will infect the life of the church. It will steer them away from gospel mission. The gospel is our stewardship, and we are responsible to know it, trust it, and promote it. Verses 5 through 7, keeping with the aim of love. Unsurprisingly, one of the ways sound doctrine is rejected in the church today, you know, this is the, the royal we aspect, is by oversimplifying doctrine. As we said, I don't need to understand everything about Christ. I just need to love him and love other people. But the gospel, its foundational truths, are simple. We don't need to oversimplify things. We don't need to tear everything else away because the gospel in itself is a simple message. It's meant to transcend time and space and culture, age and understanding, all those kinds of things. The gospel is something that can be received by anyone who will believe. That is good news. But still we hear things like doctrine isn't necessary. We just need to love God and love people. I mean, should we really just be getting our doctrine from the Beatles? All you need is love? I don't think that's a good source. Now, of course, Jesus spoke about love, and we mentioned that, the great commandment, the second great commandment. But when we say that we don't need doctrine, and then say all we need is love, we are immediately pronouncing, you know what it is? It's a doctrine. It's an oxymoronic statement. Doctrine really isn't necessary. We just need to love God and love people is a doctrine. Even if you just stopped at doctrine isn't necessary. That's a doctrine. That's something that you believe about God. You don't get to say something about God and people and say you don't need doctrine because that's how we engage with God in doctrine. So Paul gives a better understanding of the relationship between love and sound doctrine here in verses 5 through 7. For Paul, sound doctrine is, if you will, the bow the church is the arrow, and the target is the love of God. Got it? And the only way to get to the target is to be shot by the bow. You understand the illustration, right? It's starting to break down in my mind, at least. He says in verse 5, the, five, the aim of our charge. Now, this charge that he's talking about is what Timothy is meant to say to the false teachers. And this is so vitally important, because I personally have lived a lot of my life in Christ thinking false teachers are the enemy, they don't deserve nothing from me, I'm only you know, here to help any of the sheep that are being persuaded wrongly. 
But the fact is, is that Paul, who is serious about sound doctrine, is serious about gospel mission as well. Because good doctrine produces, rather, we should say, healthy doctrine produces healthy churches, which result in healthy mission. And Paul is serious about the mission as well. He's not leaving that behind for the sake of doctrine. Doctrine is the bow that launches the church at the aim of love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You know, his hope for Timothy was that when he goes and confronts these false teachers, that they would not only stop teaching, which would be enough for me, really. And to be totally honest, in my fallen and self-centered viewpoint, I would just love it for false teachers to stop teaching. But Paul sees beyond that, and he says, we actually want them to be reestablished in love. We want them to walk in love. And the fact is, is that these false teachers, even if they may be promoting, like we see today, just love for the sake of love that sounds good, they couldn't be further from the reality of love. So it is with these false teachers in Ephesus. It's really silly to imagine we can reject doctrine and embrace love because in the first place, we get our doctrine about love from Jesus. Jesus said when he was asked about the greatest commandment that it was to love God, to love people. He answered with sound doctrine. And yet, people swerve. So look at verse 6. Certain persons... Paul, who will later on and very soon mention people by name at this point in the letter, just says certain persons. Certain persons by swerving from these. What are the these? Look back at verse 5. It's not that they've swerved from love. They've swerved from a pure heart, from a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now let's point out right now, where do you get those things? If we're trying to keep ourselves from false teaching, then okay, part of it is going to be sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. How do I get those things? What do I need to do to have a pure heart, to have a good conscience and a sincere faith? Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's it. These are not things that are produced by the works of people. A pure heart? Can you cleanse the sin from your heart? A good conscience? Can you teach yourself what is right and wrong? A sincere faith? Do you even know the sincerity of your own heart? Jeremiah said our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who could know it? I mean, I think one of the great reassurances that you are a Christian is when you have those moments where you wake up and you go, I don't think I'm a Christian. Because you're realizing that there's an inconsistency between what you believe and how you act. There's a reality that that what you want to do, you can't do. and, And what you don't want to do, you keep finding yourself doing. And those are the words of Paul the Apostle. That's how he felt often. So let us not neglect these things that are grace in our lives. A pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith purchased by Christ so that we might have a clear way to the target of love. Let's go back to the problem in Ephesus. Paul says that some have swerved from this. They've swerved from these elements, these ingredients that that point us to love, the transforming work of the gospel, delivered through healthy teaching from the word of God. These things come to us by grace, and they have swerved from grace, essentially. They've swerved swerved from what is necessary in order to be a true teacher of God's word. They've wandered, Paul says in verse 7, because they've swerved from the truth of the gospel. I love this. You see this on the back of Jeeps all the time, right? It's a Tolkien quote. Not all who wander are lost. In Paul's view, if you're wandering in doctrine, 
you're loster than lost. You are, you are in a very dangerous place. You, and this is, this is important for us because part of the motivation, as we saw in the beginning, was that they are speculating over things like genealogies and myths and things that are exciting and interesting and new and different. And this is first century Christianity. How bad is it today? If, if it's a matter of looking at like, ooh, what's new and different and mysterious and what can we kind of put our minds to? I mean, if it was that, then how bad is it now? Be careful when somebody says, I have something new to tell you today. If I ever tell you that, then pull out the tomatoes that you bring every Sunday morning and fling them. There's nothing new under the sun, and in the gospel there is nothing new, but there is something glorious. It is an old thing. It is a precious thing. And our job in studying God's word and promoting the gospel is to dig deep into ancient truths and pull up diamonds and jewels and precious gems. But false teachers wander. They swerve and they wander. We need to see the purpose of promoting sound doctrine and correct, correcting different doctrine is a matter of love because that is what the gospel presents to us, the love of God through Christ our Lord. And so if you come across someone who is believing something that is false or even worse, teaching something that is false, please swerve away from a spiritual elitism that would say, since my doctrine is sound and right and good, my mission and gift to the church is to correct everyone else in all their idiocies and lunatic ideas, right? Too many Christians have that mindset. Too many open up God's word and find sound doctrine and go, aha, 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 and they make the same error as these false teachers. It's just the error is that they're not aiming towards love, even with sound doctrine. So don't forget the matter of love. Love must always be the goal for correcting error. Sound doctrine won't lead us to loveless Christianity, but it will produce love by transforming our lives. Because our sound doctrine is rooted in the gospel, church. It's rooted in the good news of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Last section, verses 8 through 11. Sound doctrine from the law and from the gospel. Now, this, is, this has been funny to me this past week as I've read multiple commentators say that as we come to verse 8, Paul is digressing. And I'm like, oh man, that's a bad word in preaching, isn't it? It's got to be a bad word in epistle writing too, right? You don't want to digress, right? Yeah, I mean, who, who wants to stand up here and hear me go off on a rabbit trail and say, oh, but I digress? I mean, what, a, what an arrogant sounding thing. Because when we digress, usually what we're thinking of is we're, we're thinking of the times that, that, you know, something sounded interesting or enlightening and I kind of wandered over here away from the pulpit and the Bible and started talking about something that was irrelevant and then brought myself back in. Maybe I'm doing that right now. But as Paul digresses here, he makes a good digression. He sees something as he's writing that he goes, hold on a second. We need to stop for just a moment because I don't want you to think that using the word of God, particularly the law, he says, is the problem with these false teachers. So, verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And that's not to say the law is only good when it's rightly handled, but the use of the law is good. You should use the law. You should understand how to use the law, but only to use it lawfully. 
from swerving to wandering to confident assertions, the false teachers have abused the law and misled the people of Ephesus. And why have they been misled? Well, because they were standing up there holding a Bible. They must have known what they were talking about, right? I, I just believed them because he had a Bible open and he said the things that Paul was saying. Again, church, don't do that this morning. Don't do that any morning. Me or anyone else. Be sure that what you are hearing is consistent with sound doctrine. Because there is a wrong way to use the law. There is a wrong way to use the gospel. Paul is warning Timothy. They've wandered from the matters of grace in the gospel. They're promoting a spiritual elitism that is contrary to the gospel. That if you really want to be spiritual, what you need to do is learn how to discover the mysteries in what Paul's really saying. Church, what we practice in our preaching is something called exposition, in which we have the word expose. The goal is to say, here is what God's word says and nothing else. That is the priority. What they're doing is speculating about things between the lines. Now, sometimes we do need to read between the lines to get the tone of a text. Or or to remember, like this morning in Sunday school, we were talking about grace as you were up here. And we were thinking about Abraham receiving grace. Well, there's no line that says, and then God gave grace to Abraham. But when God spoke to Abraham for the first time, it was grace. It was by grace alone. He didn't say, Abraham's the real kind of guy that I'd love to make a nation out of today. No, he chose him because he chose him, and he gave him grace in that. So must we then understand that this is how God interacts with us, is by grace. So, the law. There's a right way to use the law. Let's look at verses 9 through 10 and see how, what Paul means by this. Um, Follow along again as I read this list. And as I read it, I'm not going to go too far into this idea, but the law is actually encapsulated here by Paul very closely in line with the Ten Commandments. He kind of uses the Ten Commandments as an outline. He pops back and forth a little bit, but he covers things that we could see covered in the Ten Commandments. So there's a right use of the law. This is what he says. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. How? We need to understand this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So there's our starting point. We'll use that comma as a pause. The law is laid down for the unjust, for the disobedient, for those who recognize I need corrected. Who wants to come to church on Sunday morning to be corrected, right? Did you wake up thinking, you know, I can't wait till he tells me everything wrong with my life this morning? We don't immediately grasp onto that, but as we see the word of God and we measure ourselves next to it, we use it as a mirror in the right way, we see that its purpose is fulfilled in revealing our need for the gospel, which is his last point in verse 11 in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So, read on again, verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, for disobedient. And then it gets more specific. The ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he takes the Ten Commandments and he says, the law of God reveals to us that behaviors that contrast God's character is unhealthy doctrine. It's simple. He's just exposed it. He's shown Timothy in the churches of Ephesus, this is how you use the law. 
And the truth is, is that from this passage, and hopefully from the little bit that I've just said, you understand how to use the law now, right? Maybe you understood it before. I'm sure all of you understood it before. But it doesn't take long to recognize what the purpose of God's law is. It's to reveal the need for a Savior. Anything that is contrary to sound doctrine, anything that is acted upon that is contrary to sound doctrine, reveals our need for the law, because the law is not our means of salvation, it's our means of pointing to salvation. It is Christ who came to fulfill the law for us. We cannot fulfill a law on our own. The purpose of the law is according to the gospel. The last phrase is essential, because in it Paul connects the law to the gospel. The law is there to teach our need for Christ, and this is true of every passage of the Bible. This is a hot topic. There's, a, there's been, in one sense, a resurgence the last 10 or 15 years about Christ-centered preaching. And, and I'm in that. Like, I'm full-on in that. And it's, it's essential for us to come to God's Word, not to speculate about how Christ might be represented or hidden in these passages, but rather how they point to Christ. What's the difference between those things? Uh, one thing that was brought up in a commentary about how they might have been mishandling the law was that there were some who taught that an allegorical reading of the Bible was essential. So allegory is like Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan represents who? Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's a clear, obvious allegory. Um, not that people read Chronicles of Narnia and then started misrepresenting the Bible, misinterpreting the Bible, but... When you take that allegorical view with the Bible where it's not being allegorical, you run into a lot of problems. One of the problems that they had then was going to Genesis and saying, you know what I think? I think Adam represents Jesus and Eve represents fallen humanity. That's what it is. And if we can just understand these hidden meanings that are mysterious and only found out by us smart people who are able to speculate on these things, then we'll reach a greater plateau of spirituality than all the peons who don't think about it. That was basically the heart behind those things. So Paul says, here's how you use the law. You use it not to discover some mysterious thing that only smart people can come up with. You use it to point to Christ, to point to your need for Christ. So, it's a great time to think about this because you probably started a new Bible reading plan. And sooner or later, maybe around March or April, you'll come to a book called Leviticus if you're reading through. What do you do when your daily devotional is Leviticus and you're reading about purity laws and you're reading about things that are so far removed from your everyday experience? We all just want to like grab onto a verse that's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'll just make that my verse every day for the rest of the year. Well, that wouldn't be a bad thing, but you would miss the work of the law pointing you to Christ. And I would submit to you that a great starting point is getting a study Bible. And if you don't have one, let me know. You should have one. And with that study Bible and with an attitude before the Lord to say, show me Christ in this passage. Point to Christ in this passage. I don't think the Lord ever says no to that kind of prayer request. Because that is the purpose of the law. Jesus says in the end of Luke, all these things were written about me. They were all here to point to your need for me. That is sound doctrine. And that is the measure for sound doctrine. Anything that would contradict that doctrine is not healthy. It is not sound. So Paul has shown us that our natural state apart from God's law is not to believe sound doctrine in the gospel, but by our own desire we swerve from what we created, what we were created for and are left to wander and these things at the end of the passage. 
to wander through the law and, and try to come up with their own meaning. Let us not do that because Christ has come to stop our swerving. He's come to take our sin sickness and grant us a healthy truth. One of the most significant things Jesus prayed for his church before his death is what we read earlier in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You know, part of me when I look at John 17 and see all the things he prayed for, I, I wonder, like, there's a couple other things I would have loved for Jesus to pray for in those moments, but he hit the essentials. And so ought we to be sanctified in the truth of Christ, to know him for who he is, not to wander in our own righteousness or intelligence. We need to be aware of our brokenness and our weakness because that is part of sound doctrine. Church, we need the gospel today as much as we ever did when we first believed. And people around you need the gospel more today than they did yesterday because they're also one day closer to meeting Jesus. So do we want to be a church that has a clear aim of love? Because there is something attractive about that. When the world notices these people are different, they actually do love people. Well, how are we going to do that? Starting with sound doctrine, with making sure that our church health is rooted in the grace of Christ and secure in that. To connect our theme this year, being a church marked by an extending grace, we need to have a healthy dose of sound doctrine in our lives. It may sound self-serving to end with this, but I would ask if you would pray for me in the days to come. Because this is a tough passage to preach. This is a tough book to preach. I really want to be like Timothy in this and just kind of say, it's just what Paul said. I'm just trying to say what he said. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for the other elders? Pray for the other teachers within the church who would take up the word of God and say, thus saith the Lord, and you must respond either in faith or in rebellion. But pray for yourselves. Again, in this time of New Year, it's a great moment to stop and consider your need for daily gospel truth. How are you going to do that? What would your personal plan be to keep healthy doctrine in your life, to keep the aim of love in your actions? Will you promote the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in 2024? Because that was the end that Paul reached that is in accord with the glorious gospel of Christ. If Christ does not seem glorious to you today, the thing you need to do is open up his word and discover that glory. And it doesn't take a massive intellect. It doesn't take secret knowledge. It takes a heart that would say, Lord, do what you said you would do. And church, if you feel that your heart is in that place where you would say, yeah, that's what I want, then no, even that is a grace. Well, why is that important? You keep talking about grace, you keep talking about sound doctrine. It is important because that will keep you in that place. Because it'd be so easy. And the false teachers ended up in this place where they said, oh, yeah, we want to know more about God and his word. Oh, and then they started getting into the mysteries and the genealogies and the speculations. Don't wander, church. Establish your heart in Christ. May he establish your heart in Christ, I should say. Let's bow our heads for a moment. We'll pray. I'll ask the worship team to come up for our last song. Our Lord God, we thank you this morning that you have not left us orphans to use Jesus' words. You've not left us without your word. We have an abundance of it this morning, Lord. And in the moments to come, where no doubt each one of us will experience the feeling of, man, I feel like I should know the answer to that question that was asked, or I feel like I should be able to come up with a Bible verse quicker. Lord, would you, by your grace, 
draw us to your word daily. Would you help us this morning as we are thinking through our perspective of sound doctrine and the purpose of love, the purpose of the glory of Christ? Would you help us to feed our hearts, our minds with your truth? Would you sanctify us in your truth? Set us apart for you, for your mission, for your glory alone, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.